0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, Hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 22nd. Today, how a visit from the president exposed racism in a southern city, the looming implications of an aging population, and fires in the Amazon. People were always so kind in Greenville, always. That's Heidi Serrano. She's from Guatemala. I am
1: 39 years old. 1997 is when I moved to Greenville, North Carolina
0: with my family. Greenville is a city of almost 100,000 people. It's pretty diverse, and it's been a great home for Heidi. They were always so helpful. Like, when they said, like, the southern community, it was so nice. Like, I really liked the people. People are always so welcoming and so kind, so helpful. But things aren't perfect in Greenville. Despite the kindness and the acceptance, Heidi says that people in the community still show racism. That became clear last month, when President Trump held a campaign rally in Greenville in the middle of his attacks on four congresswomen of color.
2: Was I shocked? not really.
0: Even though the county voted for Barack Obama both times and then for Hillary Clinton, Heidi had seen what kind of reaction Trump got when he'd come to Greenville for a rally in 2016.
1: When he came here when he
2: was running for president, they were all chanting Build that wall. We all see these rallies and we see the the highlights from them, but we have to remember that these rallies are taking place in specific places and there are communities involved.
0: Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post. He recently went to Greenville to understand how the community has changed after the chance of Sent Her Back.
2: I was interested in understanding a little bit more if you're an immigrant in Greenville, if you're a refugee in Greenville. What does that feel like to have thousands of your fellow citizens, your neighbors, standing up in an arena and saying, send her back?
0: So who did you talk to to ask those questions?
2: So I talked to uh, quite a few people in Greenville who are neither white nor black. There are people from Iraq, Palestinian-Americans. And it was interesting because I asked them about what they had experienced before Trump of Greenville And almost across the board, they said that Greenville was a place where they loved to live and where they had never really experienced discrimination. I talked to a woman named Summer Bedouin. Her name is spelled S-A-M-A-R, but she pronounces it Summer.
0: When people call my name, they always, you know, don't pronounce it right. So I just tell them it's Summer.
2: She's lived in, in Greenville for 30 years. She was born in the United States and she loves Greenville. She says, everything I could possibly want in the world is here. It's a university city. It's got a hospital. You have great shopping centers, entertainment, everything. She's raised her kids there. She works there. This is home for her. And she wears a hijab. She says that before Trump came to office, she almost never had any experiences with prejudice. She never had people telling her she should go back anywhere, that she didn't belong.
0: When I first wore hijab, there wasn't really like a big change other than, you know, people maybe looked at me a little bit more just because, um, you know, they saw somebody in a hijab and maybe that wasn't, they've never seen somebody with a hijab. I I mean, I imagine that she probably didn't go to the rally itself, but, but she would have seen on TV what was happening there. What was her reaction to that? And how did it make her feel about her community?
2: She watched the rally via live stream. She said, I knew what the message was going to be, but she seemed to be somewhat taken aback by the vehemence with which her friends, neighbors, fellow citizens were expressing this this sentiment of send her back.
0: Did she feel like the president was influencing how people in her community, white people in her community, how they were feeling? Or did she feel like what the president was saying just allowed them to be more honest of what they'd been feeling the whole time.
2: This was one of the essential questions that I was asking people because I think it it really goes to this question of, is, is Trump stirring something that already exists or is he creating new prejudice? It was interesting. I, I got mixed reactions from the people I, I spoke with. I think most people that I spoke with, their sense was that he is stirring Uh, emotions and getting people to say things that they already felt deep down somewhere, that this, he's not creating things that are new. He's not creating this prejudice out of nothing, but that he is stirring it and that he is giving voice to it. And he's making it permissible to say these things out loud. He's giving people permission to say what they maybe had acknowledged only to themselves or close family members, but now they're willing to stand in a sports arena and shout it.
0: I mean, I know we have racism here, just like any other city or town. Maybe it's just more obvious now because they're more emboldened to speak out against um, others, you know, their racist
2: views. And for people who live in Greenville who see themselves as the targets of these attacks, it's, it's jarring. It's very jarring. And it's very unsettling to all of a sudden realize that the place where you had felt very welcome, where you had felt like a member of the community, all of a sudden you realize maybe you were wrong about that.
0: A lot of people are really concerned about the president's rhetoric and the way that that has been picked up among people all over the country, especially when we look at El Paso. Has there been any research into how what the president says or the president going and visiting places, talking to people in places, whether that actually results in some kind of change in sentiment?
2: So a group of University of North Texas researchers has looked at exactly this question and they looked at the places where Trump held his rallies during the 2016 campaign. And they found that there has been in those counties a 226% increase in reported hate crimes relative to counties where Trump did not visit. So this is not necessarily causal. Yeah, this is
0: one of those causation correlation things, right? Like maybe this is just a place where people have always had nasty feelings about their neighbors and that now they just feel more empowered to do something about it.
2: Right. So they tried to control all the variables that they could in, in doing this study. And they acknowledge we don't know exactly what caused this, but, but you do see a, a very strong correlation. And it makes sense. You have a president who, during the campaign and, and ha, who has continued since he was elected, to try to stoke racial divisions. And when you have a president who is doing that, or, or a, a, a nominee who is doing that, it, it makes sense that that kind of rhetoric would have an impact.
0: How have leaders and, and public officials in Greenville responded to to the fact that the president showed up and said these things and then people chanted these things in their city?
2: So the mayor of Greenville is a Republican. It's a nonpartisan office, but he is a Republican. And he welcomed Trump to the city that day. The day after the rally, he issued a statement condemning the chant, saying that this is not who we are as a city this does not reflect who we are as a people, this is not how we regard our non-white neighbors, and basically very strongly distancing himself from the president's rhetoric and from the rhetoric that was of the crowd that day. When I went there, I tried to interview him, and his spokesperson said that he's trying to move on from this experience and is not doing any more interviews about it.
0: For the people that you talked to who did feel this this real anxiety and and fear because of what they heard their neighbors saying at this rally. How do you think things will change for them going forward?
2: Right now, there's a lot of fear. And uh, when I talked to Heidi, she said, all of my friends are texting me saying, I don't feel safe going out to the grocery store. I don't feel safe being out in public. We're being targeted as a people. As this campaign heats up, it doesn't seem as though racial divisions are going to be calmed by, by this campaign. It seems like, if anything, they're going to be, be heightened. And I think that in a place like Greenville, which has now had, for some, a very traumatic experience with this, there was no actual violence done, but I think for a lot of people, this felt like a very hateful rhetoric. And I don't think that it's something that people are just going to forget. I think that people are, this is going to stick with people for a very long time. And everyone I talked to there said, we have a lot of work to do in terms of talking with one another, in terms of really trying to understand one another better, because apparently we're not understanding each other very well right now.
0: Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post.
3: This is a story about America's future. We as a country are getting older, and in some places that's happening a lot faster than in other places, and the fastest place that's happening is Maine.
0: Jeff Stein covers economics for The Post.
3: I went to one of the most rural uh, and one of the poorest parts of the state. It's called Piscataquis County in Maine, and I went to the nursing home to meet actually someone else and as I was leaving, this family was was crying uh, in, in the waiting room. This woman, Beth Lagasse, she's a phys ed teacher, and her father and mother have both been severely ill. Her mom uh, died in June, uh, her father suffered a stroke.
0: I obviously wanted him to be, to be loved and care for. And- Obviously, his preference is to be home, <laughs> but that's not an option right now,
2: so.
3: The whole family really felt that this was a crisis they were going through. They could not believe how difficult it was to find money and support for both their parents, to find workers to care for their parents.
2: Pretty
0: much all of our friends are dealing with very similar situations right now, you
2: know?
3: And Beth talked about just how difficult it's been for her. She's sort of absorbed a lot of the burden of taking care of her parents because she doesn't have children of her own, unlike her siblings. But just hearing from her really drove home how serious this crisis is for uh, everyday families.
0: When you say that Maine is getting older faster than other parts of the country, like, what are we actually talking about here? Like, how much older is
3: it? The World Bank has a definition for this. They call it super-aged, and it refers to when more than 20% of the population is over 65, and no state in American history had ever crossed this threshold until Maine did.
0: So why is Maine getting old so fast?
3: There are two main demographic factors that have pushed Maine's median age up to the highest in the country. One is that the birth rate has declined, particularly for white people in this country, and Maine is whiter than a lot of other states in the country. The other is that Maine has lower levels of immigration uh, than much of the rest of the country and isn't really drawing in new young people. And those three factors, I guess I would say, have combined to make Maine the oldest state in the country.
0: And so you went to Maine and you talked to people there about what it was like to be part of this aging population.
3: It's funny because when I I think I first went up, I thought people would look at me kind of funny, like, oh, you know, I didn't expect people to be acutely and intimately aware with the demographic changes
0: in their state. That you didn't think that most people would be like, oh, yes, of course we are. super aged (laughs) according to the United
3: Nations. Right. Everywhere I went, people said, oh, yeah, the aging problem, that's huge. Um, Basically, the problem is that you have a huge increase in the number of elderly people in Maine. At the same time, you're seeing a contraction in the number of working-age people. And the most acute and, I think, traumatic effect of that is that there aren't enough care workers to deal with this elder boom. And in the rural, poorer parts of the state that I went to, you're really seeing older people fall through the cracks and not be able to get the help and services they need as they get older, even though Medicaid and the state are legally obligated to pay for care hours for people and old people in many cases, I think over 6,000 hours a week, they do not have the staffers, they do not have the workers to do that care. So a number of people I spoke to have aging parents who they cannot find the workers to care for, and that means that the children have to pick up the slack, they have to drive sometimes more than an hour. It's a very rural state, so people are driving crazy distances. They're spending all of their free time, sometimes much of their work time, taking care of their parents because there's this worker shortage. They're exhausted at work. They have had no time for hobbies. This woman, Janet Flaherty, I spoke to was a really vivid example and illustration of this. She said that she hasn't spent any time with friends in over a year because she and her two sisters have been trying so hard to figure out how to care for their mom, who recently um, was walking out of their driveway and slipped and, and cracked her head and has had a number of really extreme health issues. And Janet has three stepchildren and would like to get to know them and would like to get to spend time with them. But over the last year, year and a half, since her mom's health really started deteriorating, and because they have no home care aids that they can turn to, she spent virtually no time with her stepchildren. And that's uh, really sad for her.
0: And if you say that, the rest of the country is following in the footsteps of Maine demographically becoming older then is there an expectation that this problem of lacking an adequate workforce to actually take care of elderly people that that's going to become an increasing problem for the rest of the US as well
3: yes there are some states that are likely to be protected a little bit from this trend states particularly like Texas you have really large immigrant populations utah is very young But really, the vast majority of the country will be super aged under that definition um, by mid-century. And I think, you know, this is obviously such a personal issue. And we've gotten so many emotional responses to the story because what could be more important or more salient in someone's life than the idea of taking care of an aging parent and not being able to do that? I mean, it's just the emotional conflict there is really intense. It's. It's a sense of guilt that they're not doing enough for someone who took care of them and cared for them when they were younger. But also the recognition of the reality that people cannot spend all day taking care of an aging parent when they have to go to work and take care of their own kids in many instances.
0: Can you read some of those responses that you got from people about your story?
3: Sure. Um, Melissa Berkey writes, My mother is in a senior facility. I research other facilities all around. The price tag from 8000 to 11000 per month is ridiculous. They claim that my mother could get any level of care that she needs. Simply not true. Nursing staff stretched way thin. Don't get involved unless they have to. Untrained staff giving meds and making medication decisions that they know nothing about. Uh, Wendy Miles wrote us to say... Quote, I am a 51-year-old single woman who has been the primary caregiver for my now 81-year-old mother for the last 10 years. She is currently in a respite stay at a nursing home where she has lain in her own urine for hours and has not been administered a needed antibiotic for three days. This particular facility has a five-star rating. I shake my head when I read the article here because I already feel the impact, as many do, of short-staffed facilities.
0: And so the, the connection that a lot of these people are drawing is that because there is such a shortage of younger people to be able to staff these facilities or to be able to provide elder care, that it means that the quality of service is, has gotten much worse.
3: Yeah. Well, some of the care workers I've talked to really sort of say that they don't have to do this and that it's kind of crazy for them to do it. Basically, you know, unemployment is low, there's a labor shortage, and The payment rates for the care workers is determined by the state Medicaid program, and it's largely flat. So the care workers I talked to are getting paid essentially $11 an hour, basically the same as the state's minimum wage. So these people who are doing really like backbreaking, horrific, (laughs) traumatic stuff that they have to see every day, these people deteriorate and get older, these care workers could be getting paid more in some cases to work at Dunkin' Donuts where they have regular hours and are not exposed to this level of trauma. I think a lot of the care workers I I spoke to would also say that, you know, this is really important work that they value and that they develop attachments and really begin to care for the people they're they're looking after. But we as a nation really have not valued taking care of these people. And just one thing I'd add is that every Western country except the U.S. and England have developed and implemented long-term care plans that publicly provide long-term care for their elderly populations.
0: So then what is the solution to this? Like, what can be done to actually solve this problem?
3: This is a problem that stems from society at large, both financially and sort of reputationally and and societally, not really valuing care work for, for the elderly. And part of the solution is raising the rates at which these people are paid often by the government. The system is such a mess that basically you have to be extremely, extremely, extremely rich to be able to afford private care. It's $100,000 a year. The other option is, I mean, it varies by state, but in Maine, you have to have less than $10,000 saved up in assets to be able to qualify for long-term care under Medicaid. If you're in the middle, this is really a financial problem for you. And Really, one of the only ways we're going to be able to deal with that is if we have more people who can do this kind of work. And birth rates in America continue to decline, yet there are millions of people who are trying to come here and do work here. And if more of that immigrant labor force was absorbed into our current workforce, this problem would be at least somewhat abated. You could see less of a dramatic increase in prices to do this kind of work that is beyond what almost any middle class family can afford for long.
0: If this is such a pressing concern, not only for people in Maine, but for people around the country and that we're facing this really stark future where there are just simply not enough people to take care of the elderly in this country, why isn't that more a part of our conversation when it comes to immigration and and the prospect of bringing in more young people.
3: Clearly, you know, we have a national immigration debate in which long-term care and the needs of the elderly has really not been at the forefront. We've heard a lot about immigrants taking jobs, driving down wages for American workers, but here you're really seeing a potential danger of not having enough immigrants. Not only a danger to the health of are um, baby boomers who are retiring in, in large numbers, but also, you know, to the economic health of their children and their ability uh, to contribute to the nation's economy. The immigrant workforce's ability to help mitigate this problem is such an underdiscussed part of the national discourse around this issue.
0: Jeff, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Jeff Stein covers economics for The Post. And now, one more thing, the massive wildfires spreading through the Amazon rainforest.
1: The Amazon is essentially the lungs of the earth. The trees there are taking in carbon dioxide. They're breathing out oxygen. They are storing a huge amount of carbon dioxide in the ground. And when you burn them, that gets released. I'm Andrew Friedman. I cover weather, extreme weather, and uh, climate change, as well as environmental issues. Right now, there are thousands and thousands of fires burning in the Amazon. It's burning so much that smoke has uh, traveled 2,000 miles away and turned the skies over Sao Paulo dark, uh, almost dark as night in Sao Paulo on Monday. The fires that are burning right now are much worse than in past years In 2016, we saw an extreme drought year, which led to a very big fire year. Right now, we don't have an extreme drought. This is an 85% jump in fire counts from last year. Uh, So it's an extraordinary leap in the number of fires and also in the acreage that they're losing. If this continues to accelerate, we could be losing uh, area of land... The size of pretty large American
0: states. And these fires have led to a huge political blame game. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is accusing NGOs of starting the fires in an act of retribution against him. He's also accusing scientists and journalists of exaggerating the magnitude of the fires. But experts blame Bolsonaro and his administration for failing to control illegal deforestation.
1: So the fires seem to be coming from mostly illegal land clearing called slash-and-burn agriculture, where people are going into the forests, they are cutting down trees, they're setting fires in already cleared lands to get them ready to raise cattle on that land, to raise soybeans on that land. And in some cases, the fires are getting out of control. So they're burning into the rainforest and then causing the clearing of new lands. And the government of Brazil has taken a very pro-development position and a very hostile position towards the indigenous communities that are living in the rainforest. And so what seems to be happening is they've given kind of a green light to agricultural interests to be emboldened and move uh, further and further into the forest and cause more of these fires.
2: This forest is, is important. I live in Amazonia. Yeah, I, I have a bond with this forest. I have a history here, not only me. Sometimes you look at the forest from above and you see only green, you know, from the trees. But you have people living in the forest. You have people that uh, actually depends of the forest.
0: Vitor Gomes is an environmental scientist at the Federal University of Pará in Brazil. He co-authored a study this year on the worst-case scenarios for deforestation and climate change.
2: We need to consider it all also this. We're not destroying only a forest. We are destroying people's lives and people's dreams and people's future. This forest has a huge role in the world. We are just discovering how much Amazonia is important to the world, to the region, to Brazil, to the other 80 countries that share this huge biodiversity with us. So we need to be careful. We need to care a little bit more.
1: There's fewer and fewer places where the natural world is taking up this carbon. And it, it means that we have an even harder task ahead of us to meet the goals that uh, world leaders have set out. This is not at all like the end of this story. Uh, this story is just beginning and will continue for the next couple of months as we see how significant uh, the deforestation ends up being.
0: Andrew Friedman is an environmental reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, the Black women authors who are putting people of color at the center of genres like romance, espionage, and sci-fi. I don't think that I'm trying to represent anyone in particular, but I think that if Black women read it and didn't like it, that would be the group that I would be most upset that I let down. (laughs) I'm Martine Powers.